We're going to be in Acts 9, verses 15 through 31. It's page 917 of those black Bibles, if you got it. But the Lord has said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you all. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and part of our teaching team. And uh, welcome back if this is your second week with us. And uh, if this is your, I don't know how many week with us, you're, we're glad you're here too. So uh, we're continuing this uh, study in the book of Acts and uh, really still ju just rejoicing at what a great Easter we had. Well, last weekend was so cool, um, especially getting to be here all day and seeing all the baptisms, 22 folks baptized. Um, and just a remarkable turnout. We, we had, I guess, probably around 800 or so more people than we typically have on a Sunday. So typically 12 to 1300 on a normal Sunday. There were over 2100 people here Sunday last week, which is pretty cool. So thank you. Uh, thank you for the part that you played in that. And I really do believe that, that so many people made it happen. You made it happen by inviting people. That's a huge deal. That's a big kind of risk at times in a relationship to invite someone to church. And a lot of people said yes, because I met tons and tons of people that hadn't been here before, which was really cool. Um, it was awesome to see so many people serving. Uh, I don't know how much coffee has to be made to accommodate 2,100 people, but, but a lot of coffee. Um, there were folks out in the, in the parking lot, especially on the dirt field. Did you see that? We got these guys some vests and wands, and all of a sudden they became like Jedi parking guys. 
And um, they had had no experience, at least no formal training in directing parking, though reports say that they had lots of experience parking. And so they knew how it worked. And so they got that together. Um, we had some volunteers who made a breakfast for the band and other people who were here kind of all day long. Um, I just think about our, our audio, video, and production people. Uh, these are the folks that you only notice if they screw up and you didn't notice. And they were here all weekend. They were here longer than I was. And just a remarkable thing. And, um, you know, it's, it's amazing because I get, you know, a lot of people go, oh, man, you were here for five services and you had to preach. And, and the upfront people kind of get a lot of attention. But there's a lot of people that were here, multiple services, serving in kids, helping out in lots of ways, getting chairs uh, reset and all that sort of stuff. And I just want to say thank you because we couldn't do a big weekend like that without a lot of people playing a significant role. And that really is, especially as we head into this passage here, this is how God works, right? God does extraordinary things through a lot of ordinary people. Big changes and transformations happen through a lot of small, faithful steps, right? This kind of unforgettable impact that God will do in these certain moments happens through lots of forgettable servants. And so this is just how God works. And uh, Acts 9 is really about an extraordinary change as well. And so we're going to look this morning at at the extraordinary change that happened in Acts 9 and, and maybe some less than obvious ways that it uh, came about. So, so notice the extraordinary change that, that happens in Acts 9. Look at Acts chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 and then we're going to compare that with how, it, how the chapter ends. So if you have your Bible, Acts chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 says this, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest And asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Acts chapter 9 opens with this guy named Saul who was there overseeing the death of Stephen, the first martyr in the history of the church. He was there and now he has permission from the religious authorities to travel far and wide to round people up. Damascus is far from Jerusalem and he's on his way there to round Christians up, anyone belonging to the way, and he's going to bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this is a menacing, right, the, the murderous threats he's bringing out. This is a scary, difficult, painful thing that Acts chapter 9 starts with. Now look at the last verse of Acts chapter 9. It's verse 31. Flip over there or scroll down or however you're reading your Bible. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Notice the contrast says this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Wow! And that's a significant change, right? At the beginning, Christians are running for their lives. This is terrifying. Oh no, murderous threats coming in every direction. At the end, there's peace, there's comfort. The church is growing comfortably. That's a significant transformation. Now what happened that made that transformation come about? How did that happen? Now here's the thing. It would be easy, and and we should to some degree, focus on what happened to Saul, Right? Saul is the one breathing out the murderous threats. His whole life is changed and transformed by Jesus on the way. And the transformation he experiences allows the church to experience this 
uh, same kind of thing. He, he had met Jesus, this is what we talked about last week, he had met Jesus on the road, he had seen that Jesus was in fact risen from the dead, that he wasn't just persecuting Christians, but he was actually persecuting Jesus by persecuting Christians. Jesus blinds him, makes him dependent on this man named Ananias who comes and prays for him. He receives the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And you see a really remarkable transformation that happens. In verse 20, he starts preaching. It says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Right, so the people are still skeptical, like, are we sure we can trust this guy? Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So he's preaching, he's confounding the Jews, but he's also running for his life. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed, and uh, if you put the timelines together from other New Testament books, that probably is about three years. So Luke is summarizing some things here. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night. So at this point, he's got disciples. He has people that are learning and, uh, from him and following him as he follows Christ. His disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall lowering him in a basket now there are some verses that just make me laugh does that i mean picture this like i mean two questions immediately come to mind how big was the basket (laughs) and how small was he right like i don't think they make baskets big enough that i'd feel comfortable climbing in and being lowered down through through a thing like that that's that's just funny right but he's running for his life verse 29 and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists that's the Jew uh, the Greek-speaking Jews but they were seeking to kill him so so this transformation has happened in Saul's life one commentator said that Saul the persecutor has become Saul the persecuted there's this amazing transformation and and a lot of it has to do with this transformation that happens in Paul uh, and, and again, if you're new, you're like, I thought his name was Saul. Well, eventually he's called Paul, so I just use it interchangeably. I can't keep it straight. Saul, Paul, same guy. And so we could focus on that, and, and that would be right to do. But today, I want to actually focus on some other things. And, and there's a reason for this. Normally, I wouldn't do this because the main thing seems to be about Saul. But we're going to focus so much on Saul, Paul, throughout the rest of the book of Acts that I think it's actually worth taking a moment and looking at some other things that are kind of a few layers below the surface that really help us understand, okay, how did this happen? Okay, yeah, the big transformation happened because Saul was transformed, because Saul's life was changed, because Saul was going from trying to kill the church from being part of the church. So I want to ask the question, how did that happen? Yes, Jesus met him, but humanly, what did God use to make this change come about? Because here's the thing. We can focus on Saul, and that's appropriate. But that transformation, that transition that we see in chapter 9, it doesn't happen without a few key overlooked people. 
So that's what I want to do this morning, is look at a few of these easy-to-forget, easy-to-overlook folks that actually play a really critical role in this story. And I think it's important to to talk about this because I think as we go through the book of Acts, uh, there's two kind of emotional experiences that I'm seeing a lot of people have as as we study this. One is just the excitement about, look at what God's doing. I mean, oh my goodness, all these people are being saved and these miracles are happening and God is at work and oh, I just would love for the church today to be like the church in the book of Acts. And so that's, that's one emotion that I think a lot of us are feeling. The other emotion is, I'd love to see that happen today, but if it did happen today, I don't feel like I would actually have a role to play. Because I'm not like Peter. I'm not like James and John and I'm not like Paul. I'm not one of these kind of heroic people. I'm a plotter. I'm behind the scenes. I, I'm not one of the stage people. So there's a sense in which we, at the same time, are so excited about what it could look like to be the Acts Church. And on the other hand, we kind of go, I don't know if I would even have a role in it. And what I want to encourage you this morning is that you would have a role in it. You can have a role in it. God has a role for you, that he will accomplish some extraordinary things through your ordinary faithfulness. And I want to look at two uh, examples of that here this morning. The first one that we want to look at is Barnabas. Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas is uh, a, a kind of character actor that shows up a lot in the book of Acts. It says uh, in this particular passage, the reference to him begins in verse 26. It says, and when he, that's Saul, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. That makes sense. Like this is the guy that killed our friend Stephen. This is the guy that made all our other friends scatter. Like we're not sure we can trust him. So how did it come about? How did, what was the grease that, 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 that greased the skids of relationship there? Verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Listen. Paul becomes one with the leadership in Jerusalem Right? You don't end up having the Peter church and the Paul church. You have one church. How did that happen? How did all the unity and the comfort and the, uh, the blessing that we read in verse 31, how did that come about? It came about through someone like Barnabas who was willing to stick his neck out, who was willing to play a role in bringing these two people that had every reason to not like each other together. That's what Barnabas did. Now, like I said, Barnabas is kind of a character actor. He shows up a bunch throughout the book of Acts, um, but it's really easy to never focus on him. And so that's why we're going to do this. Because you know what a character actor is? Character actors are those people who they're in every movie. You go, oh yeah, I know that guy. I know that lady. But you don't know their names. You know what I'm talking about? Here's here's some pictures of some character actors. You recognize these people? You're like, I don't. Well, you should see more movies. <laughs> like, like, these are very kind of like, oh, yeah, that's the guy. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, and she's always in that, right? Like, anybody, anybody think you know more than two names of any of these people? Back there? Is that Ranky? Who do you know? Shout it out. Catherine Hahn is in the bottom middle. Who? Who? 
Regina King, so Christine knows the ladies. Do you know more than two? Anybody know others? Yeah, Steve? John Tuturo is in the bottom right. That's correct. Can we get to six? Anybody? Can we put these names together? We got half. A couple of you, you bowed out. You were like, dang it, I knew Tuturo. I didn't know the others, right? Here's their names, uh, which doesn't matter because you won't remember. Um, but these are their names. Uh, you know, you have these various people. And, and again, you see them in all these movies. They've had wonderful careers. They've had tremendous impact in Hollywood. Um, and, and yet you don't really know who they are. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. Is the church of Jesus Christ is filled with character actors. And needs character actors. These people who just show up and they're there and they're faithful and they're present and they're making a difference and yet they're totally overlooked and maybe forgotten. And Barnabas is one of those guys. Let me just show you how big of a role he actually plays throughout the book of Acts and yet you maybe don't even really know much about him at all. Our our first introduction to him was in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, there was all this discussion about how the church was so generous and the church was loving one another. And one of the prime examples that Luke, the author of Acts, gives is our introduction to Barnabas. It's in Acts chapter 4. It says this, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' So that's our introduction to Barnabas. His name actually isn't Barnabas. What's his name? Joseph. It's Joseph. But he's called Barnabas because Barnabas, it's a nickname and it means son of encouragement. Right? The disciples, the apostles, they're seeing this guy and everywhere he goes, he's just an encourager. Right? That's how you get a nickname. Right? The way you get a nickname is either you really exemplify something or you really don't and people are being sarcastic. Right? So like my nickname in college was Quadzilla. Uh, I was a baseball player, tight pants. You'd, you'd understand it better if you saw that image. But either that means you have really big legs or you're like a chicken, right? Like little chicken legs. And I had really big legs, right? Or, or if you don't have it at all, like we had this coach in high school who we nicknamed um, Coach HIV because he was always so positive. I don't know if that's... It's like the opposite of this, right? Like, like you might call him, hey, Barnabas, you know, because you're clearly not encouraging, right? But, but the way you get a nickname is you just exemplify something. It's there. Just, like, this is just who you are, right? And so this is, this is him. And you actually see that this just, this spirit of encouragement that, that happens, it's just, so, it's just over and over. So that's where we were first introduced to him. The next time he shows up is in verse 27, which we read a moment ago, that Barnabas goes and he kind of plays this mediatorial role between Saul and the apostles. We're going to see him again in Acts chapter 11, because when the gospel begins to spread to Antioch, and Antioch will be, end up being this kind of sending hub, key critical church in the, in the book of Acts, who, does the, who do the apostles decide to send? Barnabas, look at this in Acts 11. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. 
They go, wow, God's doing something up there in Antioch. Who could be a representative for us? Who could we send that would be just a really great presence that would help you know, unify the church? And who do they think of? Barnabas. Why? Because he was an encourager. Because he was good relationally. Because he cared about people. Because he was thoughtful. And you see the thoughtfulness just a few verses later. Because it seems like when Barnabas gets to Antioch and he looks at the situation, he goes, oh my goodness. There is somebody that I have to go get. There is somebody that would be perfect in this environment. There is somebody that would just make a huge difference if I could get them into this Antioch church. And here's what we read a few verses later. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch and they spent a bunch of time there doing ministry. So think about this, right? Barnabas didn't have to go, right? The, the, the apostles had not commissioned him, hey, go to Antioch and then go get Saul and make sure you encourage him to come there because by this point, years and years have passed. Instead, Barnabas is going, you know what? I, I'm just looking for who, who would fit well together. How can I be a blessing? How can I be an encouragement? He's this kind of connector type person. A little bit later, when the church in Antioch decides to take an offering to support the people experiencing famine in Judea, who do they send with the money? Barnabas, Acts eleven twenty nine. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Who do you entrust with your money? Trustworthy people. When the first missionary journey comes about, a few chapters later, in Acts chapter 13, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. So Barnabas just shows up over and over and over. And then get this, who's willing to take a back seat later on in his ministry? Barnabas. There's something really fascinating when you read the beginning of Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, it talks about the Holy Spirit setting apart Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. And by the end of chapter 13, do you know how they're referred to? Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. And it started Barnabas and Saul, and it became Paul and Barnabas. And don't you think there had to be a sense in which Barnabas was kind of like, wait a minute, I was here before him. I was donating fields while he was trying to kill us, right? And there could have been a sense in which he would have gone, I've got to be important. But that's not what you are when you're a son of encouragement. When you're an encourager, when you're a Barnabas, you're saying, it's not about me. It's not about my attention. It's not about my acclaim. It's not about my comfort. It's about how can I go be a blessing to other people? Some of you go, I'm not a, I'm not a Peter. I don't, I can't preach. I'm not a Paul where I have all this great wisdom of the scriptures and I can confound people with my brilliant answers. Okay, you're not Peter, you're not Paul. Will you be a Barnabas? Will you be an encourager? Will you look around the situations around you and will you just play your part? I, I loved this one story that was shared uh, this past Sunday. One of the guys who got baptized shared this story about growing up in a home where uh, his, his parents um, didn't really approve of him. He could never quite live up to their standards. They had big expectations of him being a doctor, or being a lawyer, or being something really important. And he ended up saying, well, I don't think that's who I am. And he did some other jobs. 
And this really upset his parents and it really upset his father in particular, so much so that he ended up moving out of his parents' home fairly early, where he then was welcomed by a family from our church. And they said, hey, why don't you come live with us? Why don't you come stay with us? We'll love you. We'll take care of you. We'll encourage you. And so he moved in with them. And he was not a Christian. He thought of himself maybe agnostic, maybe atheist. He wasn't sure, wasn't really thinking about God. But he saw the love of God in this family and how they welcomed him and how they encouraged him and how they loved him right where he was. And he said, maybe, can I come to church? So he started coming to church uh, during our Romans series a few years ago. And Romans is this incredible book. Romans is this, you know, some people have called it the fifth gospel. It's this story that talks about just the powerful work of God and how God saves and, and that sort of a thing. And, and uh, w- what's funny is when, when this guy was meeting with one of our pastors, he was meeting with Matthew Brazelton to talk about their baptism and to kind of share his story. And, uh, and, and the, the guy gave me permission to share this. And, and Matthew was, was uh, talking with him and kind of hearing his story and said, so you became a Christian through Romans? And the guy's like, yeah. He said, well, what part of Romans really gripped your heart? And he said, Romans 12. And Matthew's thinking, oh, yeah, Romans 12. That's such a great chapter. Well, what verse in Romans 12? And he said, verse 7. Matthew's like, Romans 12, 7. What's that? So he gets out his Bible, and he's like, huh. And he turns to Romans 12, 7. Here's what Romans 12, 7 says. If service in our serving... The one who teaches in his teaching. The guy said, when I read that, I got, God opened my heart. And Matthew said, how? <laughs> like, that doesn't really seem to have anything to do with the gospel. Like, I, you know, this isn't like, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are made justified by his grace. Like, like what? And here's what he said. He said, what I realized was that I actually had a heavenly father who loved me the way he made me and received me with the gifts that I have. And so if my gift's serving, I'll serve. If my gift's teaching, I'll teach. And there's not this, well, these are the, this is the varsity Christians and there's the JV Christians. And he said, I, I, I was welcomed. So will you play a part? Will you remember the value and the power of encouragement? I've never had someone come up to me and go, you know what, Pastor, I'm really struggling because I just feel too encouraged. <laughs> just all day long, all I hear is encouragement. Like, no one's ever said that because, because we live in a, in a world that bites and devours and there's so much snark and there's so much sarcasm. And believe me, I can do that as well as anybody. And one of the ways that I know the Spirit of God is at work in me when he is is because he leads me to be an encourager. To look with eyes of how can, I, how can I see what people are experiencing? How can I bless them? How can I love them? Right? And those small things, those small words of encouragement don't feel small when you're being encouraged. And, and listen, you need to recognize the value of all the small things that you don't right now think are valuable. Listen, our lives are filled with lots of ordinary small moments to be Barnabas. And when we say all of life is all for Jesus, what we're calling each other to do is to embrace those small things and recognize the power of them. Like some of you, especially, I I know this is how my wife often feels. She thinks, I'm a mom, I'm just a mom. 
just a mom. I have a degree in math. Like, I've forgotten more math than my husband ever learned. <laughs> and my day is spent with red fish, blue fish, one fish, two fish. Like, and, like, really? I was doing this eight years ago, and now I'm doing it again. Really? This is, this is my life. All right, some of you who are caring for aging parents or loved ones, and every day you go, you show up, you care, you sacrifice, you hang in there when you're having to repeat yourself and tell the same story again and introduce yourself maybe even again. And you go, is this making any difference? I just feel like it's Groundhog Day. I'm just the same thing over and over. It's making a difference. Or, or think about tucking your kids in at night. Right, by that point in the day, I'm like, just get in bed! <laughs> right? Like, I saw this guy the other day, or I heard this thing, this guy the other day, he said, I had no idea that pillows had the power to remind children of their utter dehydration. But they do, right? And yet, and yet here's the thing. What, what are the times when your kids want to talk? Sometimes it's just to stall, right? I get that. But a lot of times, that's when they want to talk. And that's no small thing. That's actually a huge thing. Or think about family dinner. Right? I, I don't remember a lot of big moments growing up, but I do remember that most nights, more often than not, we sat together as a family and had dinner. And it's those small things that make a huge difference. What about coaching a team? Right? Some of you, you're coaching your kids or you're coaching your grandkids, right? and most of the kids would just as soon like stare at the airplanes as do anything else. And yet being there and being an encouragement and being a positive presence in their life, that is so powerful. Maybe it's just showing up for work in a job that you don't particularly love, but you have an opportunity to have relationships with people. You have an opportunity to provide food for your family. You have an opportunity to work in a way that honors God, even though it's not your favorite thing, even though you'd love to be doing something else. But just showing up day after day after day makes a difference. Will you be a Barnabas? Will you be a character player? Will you embrace that? So I think I see Barnabas, and, and what I really see is Jesus. Right, what, isn't Jesus the true Barnabas? Right, isn't Jesus the one who's extravagantly generous? Isn't Jesus the one who's inserting himself to make a way between us and God who we're alienated from? Isn't Jesus the one who keeps looking for opportunities to be kind and to be gracious and to be merciful to us, right? And if we see not just Barnabas and go, I gotta be like Barnabas, but if we actually see Jesus and how Jesus has welcomed us, how Jesus has brought us in, how Jesus has been a mediator, now we begin to have some strength to play a very small role. You know, Jesus' life was 33 years long and only three of those years do we read about in the Gospels. And the first 30 were spent ordinary, daily faithfulness. So let's follow in that process.
Now, here's the second person that we want to look at this morning, who, again, is overlooked, forgotten, easy to kind of not notice in this particular story, and that's Ananias. Ananias. So you see I'm kind of working backwards. Barnabas was toward the end of the passage. Ananias was at the beginning, and we're actually introduced to Ananias beginning in Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Uh, Flip back there, uh, if you would, with me. Acts chapter 9, verse 10 says this. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, "Uh, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings to the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, the transformation of Saul doesn't happen without Ananias. And here's what's amazing. This is the only place Ananias is mentioned. He doesn't show up before. He doesn't show up after. It appears that he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And so the Lord Jesus shows up to him, it says, in a vision and says, hey, Ananias, I got a job for you. Now, you know how scary this job must have been because I tend to think that if Jesus showed up in a vision to me, I'd just be like, yes, sir. Okay, whatever you want. But, but Ananias is like, uh, Lord, you have the right address because this Saul guy, like, are you sure about this? Like, this is the guy who came here to kill us? Is this like, I'm going to go to the very person who's trying to kill me and show up at their door? Hello, I'm a Christian. <laughs> I mean, he's going like, did I have like, too much falafel last night? Like, am I really seeing? Right, th- this is a scary, scary deal. And yet this unknown, forgotten, right? We don't see him again. We don't know anything about him. He's the guy who lays his hands on the apostle Paul to give him the Holy Spirit. God uses this ordinary, not an apostle, not a great preacher. We don't know who he was. And yet that's who the Lord uses. Now, Now, here's what I want you to do for a moment is imagine what this would have been like for Ananias. Because you've heard that this is the guy who's come to kill you. There's a good chance that people in your church and in your community are people from Jerusalem who have been scattered because this guy Saul is the one who was persecuting them. You know the story, right? You've had this vision, and now you're walking up to the door. What are you feeling? What, what kinds of things are you having to overcome to extend kindness here? Now flip it and imagine you're Saul. And you have been responsible for the killing and the imprisonment of dozens, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of Christians. And you've met the Lord Jesus and your life has been changed, but he's blinded you in the process and he's made you totally dependent on this guy who apparently is going to come to the house and his name's Ananias 
And he knows your story. And he knows what you've been about. And he knows what's been important. And he's probably had loved ones maybe die at your hands. What are you feeling? What are you afraid of? I mean, think about how much is at stake in that moment. And they didn't know where it would all lead. And and notice how Ananias greets him. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Commentator John Stott says this. He says, I never fail to be moved by these words. They may well have been the first words which Saul heard from Christian lips after his conversion. And they were words of fraternal welcome. They must have been music to his ears. What? Was the arch enemy of the church to be welcomed as a brother? Was the dreaded fanatic to be received as a member of the family? Yes, it was so. Brother Saul. Think about what was at stake here. Think about what had to be overcome here. Because listen, there are a lot of us who we go, well, I'll play a role and I'll be a Barnabas and I'll be an encouragement, but, but not to my enemies. And not to people who have hurt me. Go, I, I've forgiven, I've forgiven. But, 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 but if they became a Christian, I don't know if I could go to church with them. I don't, if they're in heaven, I don't know if I want to be. So that's what he had to overcome. How do you do that? Because it's easy to go, hey, just play a small role. Be a welcomer. Be a forgiver. Be an includer. Well, that's easy when it's just nobody that's ever hurt you, but what about when they've really hurt you? What about when the damage they've done is significant? How do you you get the strength to do that? I think it would be helpful to hear from someone else who experienced this. There's a woman named Corey Ten Boom. Some of you know her story. She was a Dutch Christian, and her and her family hid Jews in World War II during the Holocaust. And uh, eventually it was determined what they had done. They were arrested. They were sent to a concentration camp where in her 50s, her and her family suffered greatly. She ended up losing her sister, Betsy. And two weeks after her sister died, she ended up actually being released on what was later determined to be a clerical error. So she was released and the rest of her family was killed in that concentration camp. And she went on to write her story in a book called The Hiding Place. And she tells a really good story about this. And so uh, I have the quote, but rather than just share the quote with you, I want to actually share the audio with you because I want to give you a chance to hear her uh, telling this story and describing how she went through something like Ananias went through as well. So listen to this. It was some time ago that I was in Berlin. And there came a man to me and said, Ah, Mr. Bohm, I am glad to see you. Don't you know me? And suddenly I saw that man that was one of the most cruel outseers, guards in the concentra- in concentration camp. And that man said, I have, I'm now a Christian. I have found the Lord Jesus. I read my Bible and I know that there is forgiveness for all the sins of the whole world, also for my sins. 
I have forgiveness for the cruelties I have done. But then I have asked God grace for an opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness. And Fräulein Tambom wants him here forgiven. Will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. But when I saw, when I experienced that I could not forgive, suddenly I knew I myself have no forgiveness. Do you know that Jesus has said that? When you do not forgive those who have sinned against you, my heavenly Father will not forgive you your sins. And I, I knew, oh, I'm not ready for Jesus' coming because I have no forgiveness for my sins. But I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. And then I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5, 5. The love of God is shed abroad into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And I said, thank you, Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit who is given to me. And thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Can you forgive? No. I can't either. But he can. Can you forgive? Can you welcome? Can you love an enemy? Listen, the unity of the church, the rest of the story of Acts doesn't happen unless Ananias does that. And he maybe didn't know what was at stake. And you don't either. As you think about that person that's hurt you, as you think about that opportunity you have to be a welcomer, to be a forgiver, to be a lover, you don't know what's at stake. And you don't have the resources in and of yourself. But if you will look to the one who has forgiven you, who has shed his love in your heart, then you begin to have those resources. Will you be a Barnabas who encourages? Will you be an Ananias who forgives and who welcomes? Will you do those small, ordinary, but yet huge and extraordinary things? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and for uh, the big, bold, splashy moments that we read in it and for a lot of the small but yet heroic things that we see. Lord, thank you that uh, our desire is not merely to be like Ananias or to be like Barnabas, but rather to be like Jesus. And thank you that we're empowered to do that by your spirit because of the way that he has forgiven us, the way that he has welcomed us, the way that he has encouraged us, the way that he is giving us strength even now 
to play the role, to play the part that you are calling us and inviting us to play. So God, help us be faithful. Help us to be encouraged by the forgiveness that we find through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.